Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. In this episode, we are joined by John Langan, author of the Bram Stoker award-winning novel, The Fisherman, House of Windows, and many, many spooky short stories. Thank you so much for coming on. It's my great pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. So I guess my first question, I hope this isn't too personal, is what scares you? Oh my goodness! Everything. I, uh, <laughs> I I would like you know. On, on the one hand, some of my answers are comparatively mundane. Uh, right. Spiders. I I wish it weren't so. I appreciate what spiders do. They're and demons. If I, uh, if I find one in the house, I will try to catch it and put it outside, as opposed to to killing it. But mm-hmm. many years ago, now my wife and I were at a zoo exhibit with our son. And they were bringing around various creepy crawly uh, creatures uh, and they brought around a snake. And I actually, I'm also afraid of snakes, but I was able to, it was like a python or something like that. And I was able to to take the python in my hands and and it was surprisingly warm and alive, you know, but then they brought around a tarantula and I I, just, yeah, I tried and it just, I couldn't do it. So, so some of my fears are just utterly mundane in in that regard. And and then others, I've become much more afraid of human stupidity and gullibility, however you'd like to put that, our susceptibility to to cults and cultish behavior over the last four years. And I'm also afraid of death and of terrible things happening to those I love. So yeah, I I don't, um, like, I feel like I have a, a whole bunch of fears and I feel like they're, they're actually somewhat pedestrian, to be honest. Yeah. We're all scared of them for a reason. I don't know what it is in us that makes us afraid of spiders, but... It's yeah, just too many legs. That's, I, that's I not an acceptable that. number of legs. Well, you know, the, the, so whatever it was, however hundred many hundred million years ago, they were the dominant life form on Earth. And they, I guess they, they, were, they were considerably bigger because it was a more oxygen-rich atmosphere. And so they could support them, a, a larger size of spider. I sometimes wonder if there's some kind of genetic thing from our proto-ancestors that's gotten through to us. Like, watch out for these guys because they'll, you know, they'll get you. Yeah. There's probably a good reason. Next question. Who are your biggest writing influences, would you say? Oh, my goodness. In some ways, I, I feel like that. I, 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 I guess the, the book that made me want to be a writer was Stephen King's Christine, which I read mm. when I was a freshman in, in high school, and it just utterly magnetized me. It was, it was <laughs> a real like conversion experience. Before that, I had read a ton of comic books. So I suppose, you know, in, in some ways, when I think about the kind of florid writing, uh, the the melodramatic excess of like Stan Lee and Marv Wolfman and Len Wein, that I'm sure that's in the background of my of my head as well. I, because I read comics, I also read a lot of Conan the Barbarian stories. That was how I got through fifth or sixth grade math class. 
uh, for which I apologize, Sister Anne. Um, I had the uh, I literally had the book, the textbook up with the with the paperback behind it. Vivid memory of reading this Conan story called Rogues in the House, you know, and Conan's in this life or death struggle with Thack, the man ape. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, but I'm also trying to keep one eye on Sister Anne, who's doing whatever algebra we're doing at the board. And yeah. But yeah, it was discovering King that, that really made me think, no, this is what I have to do. And, and then since that time, to a certain extent, King is always there for me. You know, he's always someone that I kind of go back to. But as I got older, writers like uh, w- within the horror field, you know, someone like Peter Straub became very, very important to me. And then outside of the horror field, people like Flannery O'Connor and Henry James and mm. William Faulkner were all early and important influences. And I feel like in, in more recent years, it's been people more like Salman Rushdie and, and Shirley Jackson have, have been much more important to, to what I've been doing. I, I kind of feel sometimes like... Um, I, I don't know, influences, uh, I think maybe it was Fritz Leiber or someone who said that, you know, it's like waves rolling, that they sort of roll through you, you know, and they keep emanating. And, and sometimes you're writing and you're like, oh, here I am back to Henry James again, or or here I am back to uh, to Stephen King, or here it's maybe somebody else I wasn't even aware I, I was being influenced by. You write about a lot of gruesome subjects, but is there any topic that you would consider off limits, at least for yourself, to use in a story? I don't know. I, I've I've puzzled this puzzled over this question. You know, like like recently, um, I I was listening to um, I have about an hour's commute to work. And so sometimes I'll listen to books on tape. And so I got this book on tape. It was Jeremy Irons reading Lolita. And it's possibly the greatest book on tape I've ever listened to. Jeremy Irons is just, he's a fantastic reader for for this book. And it, it it's a great novel, but holy cow, is it problematic. Um, yeah. And I don't think I could write that kind of novel. I, I, I get, at least I think I get some of what Nabokov was up to in the novel, and uh, and I certainly would not tell anybody don't read the novel or it needs to be censored. No, but but I for myself I, I don't feel that um, children in da- in in that kind of exploitative danger is is something I, I'm just really comfortable with with doing. Yeah, it's a challenging subject, and approaching it the way Nabokov did was really daring and really unorthodox and it i mean i he pulled it off and i think lolita is a brilliant novel but holy shit yeah. not many people could do what he did without just making it a disaster yeah i i think that the sort of same thing with the the famous sewer scene in it at, the, at for the for the kids like I, I understand why King did it and, and I understand that there were arguments in favor of it uh and and I'm uh I'm I'm how would I put it sensitive to those arguments like I understand those arguments I don't think it's the kind of thing that that I could do um, yeah. and that may be you know as as much as anything an awareness of my own limitations as a writer and just my own sort of sensibilities and where I choose to concentrate my efforts now you would write a lot of what people consider cosmic horror. The the fisherman definitely was cosmic horror. And I'd say City of the Dog, which Stephen Mazur insisted that I read. He's, it takes place in Albany. That's where you are, Raquel. You got to read City of the Dog. Is cosmic horror. And the standard cosmic horror story typically goes like this. A guy looks into something he probably shouldn't. Often it's monsters and it drives him crazy. 
And we've been telling that story over and over again for a very long time. Even before Lovecraft and his many imitators, there was Robert W. Chambers' The King in Yellow. And even before that, I think you could probably trace back a lot of the themes and structure to ancient stories like the story of Pandora's box, the story of Eve eating the forbidden fruit, Prometheus. Why do you think this one story still excites us even after so many retellings and so many times? I think it is a kind of fundamental human story. We are driven to know. We we can't help ourselves. We We always want to know things. Somebody says, I've got something to tell you, and you may find it upsetting. Even with that warning, even if somebody says to us, oh, I'm going to tell you something, and or, you know, I could tell you something, and it's it's terrible. Of course, we'll always say, you know, I want to know, I have to know. I think it's Robert Penn Warren who says something to the effect of uh, the end of man is to know. And, you know, pardoning the gendered language there, I mean, there's some truth to that, that our, our, our desire, our purpose, but maybe also our destruction in some ways is to know. We, we just want to know things. It's interesting that 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 forbidden fruit, right, that in the Genesis narrative that that Eve eats, it's it's the the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge. There's also the tree of of um, of life, or I can't remember the exact uh, name of it, but you know, sort of the tree of immortality. She doesn't eat that first. That's not an issue. It's it's the tree of knowledge that that's what she wants, and. In that narrative, as I as every time I teach that, um, I, I wind up teaching that narrative. You know, I remind my students that the snake never lies. I mean, the snake doesn't tell the full truth, but but the snake says, you know, you'll know what God knows, and God doesn't want you to know what God knows. And indeed, when when and in fact, God has lied. I, I mean, okay, maybe God's just stretched the truth, but God has said, you eat that and you're dead. And Eve eats it and she doesn't die. She, she just knows what God knows. And in the in the Genesis narrative, there's this sort of cutaway to heaven where God is like, oh, no, <laughs> now they know what we know. We better get down there before they eat from the tree of life and then they'll be gods themselves. So so knowledge in in uh, certainly in, in Western culture, I think um, I suspect other cultures. I, I just am not as aware of other cultural traditions. But that you know, knowledge is as the this sort of primal drive in humanity. It's interesting that the snake never tempts Eve with power, or at least brute force. You know that there's nothing like that. It's knowledge. That's what we can't resist. And so I think that, that that's part of it is that we're driven to know things, and so often. So often when we know things, we experience a kind of uh, a loss of innocence, a falling into experience, I think, anyway, however you'd like to, to phrase that. And ultimately, that may be for the best, but we all, I was thinking, you know, it's the holidays, and I don't know, if you, if you had good holidays when you were a kid, then you may think back to these things, oh, I wish, you know, why can't it be like it was then when I could sit at the kiddie table? Um, now I have to sit with the adults and pretend to make conversation. And I think that the there is a certain nostalgia that we have for our own ignorance in a, in a way. Maybe it's because knowledge in some odd way becomes conflated with or tied up in death, the knowledge of death, that, that ultimately when we, when we learn about things, we're, we're learning the world, we're learning the nature of the world, the transitory nature of the world, the passing of time, and, and ultimately we're, we're learning about our own mortality and, and those of the ones we love. I've read a lot of 
cosmic horror, published and unpublished, and a lot from aspiring horror authors. And something I've noticed is that a lot of people try to copy Lovecraft's style, although they never go quite as purple, quite as hard, which, which in my opinion, is part of the fun, is how ridiculously purple he gets. Right. What's your approach stylistically? Well, I, I, I like to vary my style at, at this point in my life. I've been, I've been publishing professionally for about 20 years now. And when I first started writing, my goal was to write in this much more ornate style. And so I had in mind in particular, someone like Henry James, to a certain extent, probably Peter Straub as well. And part of the reason for that was because it was not at the time, it was not the way that people were writing. People were either writing in a kind of a quasi-naturalistic voice that that sort of, I'm talking about horror people, um, right. that, that, that to a large extent derives from Stephen King, and, and which in turn derives, I think King derives probably from people like, like Richard Matheson, but also John D. MacDonald and the naturalists like Theodore Dreiser and, and Frank Norris and, and that. So I... I saw that a lot of of the, the sort of default mode for for a lot of um I think probably American genre fiction in general there's a I'll just make huge sweeping <laughs> generalizations but at the time that I was starting anyway was this this kind of you know sort of straightforward prose which could be elegant at times don't get me wrong but I was not interested in in that I wanted to do something that was more ornate, more more stylized. And I didn't quite want to go the Lovecraft route necessarily, but I think what attracts people to, to Lovecraft, and I think in fantasy, it's probably if this were, a, if, if we were talking about fantasy, I imagine the, the question might be, why do so many people imitate Tolkien? I mean, I don't know. If you're <laughs> right. not. I'm just guessing. I'm thinking that Tolkien is the sort of analog for for Lovecraft. And and I think part of it is that these writers, they're, they're writing outside of that kind of naturalistic mimetic tradition where the, the prose is often very plain. And Lovecraft, Tolkien, they let you have fun with language. They they let you write these elaborate things. They're not afraid of, quote unquote, bad taste. <laughs> I think that worrying about bad taste, it's often that that kind of self-consciousness, I think, can be the death of art. I, I think you have to be willing to do your thing, to uh, let your freak flag fly. So so I think that that's part of what Lovecraft and, and other horror writers, because I see it in Poe before Lovecraft, and I see it in someone like Ligotti after Lovecraft. Uh, and I think plenty of other writers as well. Uh, Nicole Cushing, uh, for example, is a contemporary writer of weird stuff, uh, or Michael Sisko, the the same thing. I think that there's a way in which the those kinds of stylistic experiments they serve a number of. I think they serve a number of functions. Right, one is just sort of delight, the the sort of delight of of like language games, if you will. But then I think they often they allow the expression for the writer to express something of their own personality through writing in a way, you know, they don't have to tamp down who they are in the same way or to the same extent that they do if they're writing in, in sort of the mainstream of American naturalist writing. And, and I think probably, too, that 
that there's a sense in which, you know, what Lovecraft, let's say, right, just to take him as trying to do, it, it, and I, this is analogous to Tolkien, I think, is that they're trying to match the language to the subject matter, right? So so that the, the craziness that Lovecraft is writing about is reflected in the language itself, so that the mm-hmm. language itself becomes excessive in the same way the subject matter is, is excessive. And so I, I think for me, I was drawn more to to James when I started writing because James is all about, especially as his fiction goes on, he's all about kind of the process of perception. And I was really fascinated by that idea or or that method for dealing with supernatural events, the process of perception, how you're coming to terms with whatever crazy thing is happening in front of you. Since that time, I've tried to write in other ways just to keep it fresh so because I don't want to become a self parody just mm. by, by so so I've tried to write in in more stripped down prose and then occasionally try different voices out to to see I mean I'm I'm sure that anybody who had a lot of free time to kill and and wanted to make a study of my stories would find that there's certain underlying grammatical consistency and syntactical consistency that's okay that's that's fine but I guess I at least want for myself for my own not, not just diversion but kind of aesthetic interest I want to to try to keep things fresh stylistically. Now, we all love cosmic horror fiction, but I think cosmic horror has a real problem with adaptations. Screen adaptations usually fall flat for me. I they're usually just not scary. So, <laughs> why do you think this is? I, I think it's two things, right? It is that I think what you see in your mind is is almost always going to be better than whatever is on the screen. There were maybe one or two exceptions of this. I still find the original Alien pretty frightening, yeah. even though I know what it looks like. But there are there are certainly moments in, in the original Alien now when I watch it, right, where I'm like, oh, no, that's a guy in a suit. I can see by the way, I, I can see by yeah. the way the arms are moving, even though the head is what gets your attention. And the head is this, this horrifying phallic thing. But if you look at the way the arms and the legs are moving, you're like, oh, no, that's a person. And so that that cuts it back a a, a little bit, I think. I think it's a couple of things, right? I I think that the number of films of of sort of of, of horror films that try to do cosmic horror are are actually kind of on the on on the lower end of the, the, the spectrum. I feel like, you know, you've got zombie movies, you've got vampire movies, a ton of them and 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 you know, some really good ones too, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But things that actually try to engage with the cosmic, with with a sense of the minuscule size of humanity, if if, if you will, you know, the, the sense of the sublime of of scale. I think that those things are relatively few. And uh, I'm thinking right now, I'm thinking, okay, so Carpenter's The Thing is kind of a cosmic horror movie, I I think. It it doesn't necessarily give you that sense of the sublime exactly, but in in the sense of these people who are faced with this alien life form that is just horrifying and, and which refuses to... To, to conform to recognizable categories. You just, everything, it just keeps uh, changing. It just keeps morphing. That, that might be, that, that, that sort of trends, I think, in a cosmic horror direction, as I think that Prince of Darkness sort of does as, as mm-hmm. well. 
but I think I, I think you did. If you had emailed me about is it the Endless, the the Moorhead and Benson film, the Endless, I think yeah, yeah that's yeah. My, my probably my favorite cosmic horror movie. It yeah. does a really really good job, especially think, with such a small budget. Yeah, yeah, no, I think those guys are terrific. I'm so impressed with what was the other one that the one they did before that Spring, uh, I think that was really popular about the guy I, who falls in love with the the shapeshifter girl. Yeah, yeah, and she, I mean, in in a way, it's sort of funny. I was thinking about the one before that because that one ties into the endless in in some ways and why can i not think of the name of it i'm sorry moorhead and benson because i imagine they're hanging on my every word right <laughs> but I, I think that what those guys have done actually comes closer to to cosmic horror comes comes the the closest i i think of a feeling of being trapped in this immense world also it's kind of like it's an immense world that you just can't make add up it just doesn't seem to to fit together in a in a in a coherent kind of way and i i can appreciate that i'm sure that that uh if you're making a big budget hollywood movie <laughs> you're like <laughs> the producer's like this doesn't make any sense and you're like yes exactly i'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure they want to need spectacle you got to show the monster no yeah yeah no <laughs> i'm sure that that, that they, they have a conversation with you after that you know and and uh after after that conversation so we need the monster to be something that we can cost effectively produce as a toy so exactly. you've got to take these 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 gribbly bits out yeah yeah no take this part out it's harder I mean, to manufacture event horizon which i guess event horizon was going to be a, a hellraiser movie and then they right. for some reason they cut hellraiser out but it is still basically hellraiser in space yeah. and that, that that i would say that's cosmic horror adjacent or something something like that actually there was a recent, and by recent, I mean like in the last five years, Scandinavian film called Aniara. Um, Aniara? I don't know that which, one. Okay, so this is about this giant spaceship. Uh, Earth is dying. Uh, who knows why? Um, it's just kind of used up. And so all these people have been loaded onto this spaceship called Aniara, and it's uh, it's going to take them from Earth to Mars, which is what we're resettling, uh, in about three weeks. And um, it gets uh, struck by some some space debris, and it shoots off in another direction. And they 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 don't have the ability to get it back on track. And it's just shooting off into the the void of space. And um, and that's it. That's the movie. Is is mm. just um, now there are you know the the sort of the, the kid in me who read a lot of Robert Heinlein is like hang on a second but um, but if you accept that that they can't they can't engineer their way um, uh, back to Earth that when you get to the end of that I, I think is what I would say when you get to the very very end of that that becomes a cosmic horror movie mm. um, which. Um, uh, I, I don't want to spoil the end of it. Just if, <laughs> if, if you've seen the end of it, hopefully you agree. If you haven't seen it, it's it's worth a look. Okay, nice. And what was the name of that movie again? It's called Aniara. A N I A R A. Aniara. All right. And nice. you know there were a lot of. I, I will say, give a shout out to the streaming service uh, Shutter. Shutter rocks. Uh, yeah, yeah, because they have just a ton of. Like I want to say low budget, but I don't mean that in a condescending kind of way. I, I just mean movies that that are not two hundred million dollar blockbusters. And I, I feel at this point in time, like horror movies are they're some of the best movies, just because for for all the 
we think to ourselves, oh, horror is such a cramped and restricting form and blah, blah, blah. Like there's so much innovation in the films that you find on a channel like Shudder that you can, you can just turn it on and just just pick something at random. And the chances are, are good that you're going to get some kind of weird, you know, sure, it may be another vampire movie, but someone will have done something bizarre with the vampire and, and, and then tried to play out the consequences of that. And I, I really think I'm really grateful for that. Right. I think when you have a lower budget, you have more room to experiment. When you've got $300 million, you, you can't really take risks. The studio, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. the studio needs to make a return on that investment. When you are trauma levels of budget, you can just do whatever you want. <laughs> no one's going to care because it's so cheap. You're probably going to make a profit no matter what. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I think that that, look, it's the big, it's, it's, and I am far from an expert in this. So, but in my very amateur eye or, or from my very amateur viewpoint, it's the big problem with film and mainstream publishing at the moment is that because everything has become so consolidated where now we have whatever it is, four or five publishers, I think we're down to four and an equal number of movie studios everything has to make a gigantic profit. There's there's no room, as we say, for the mid-list in, in film or especially in publishing. That's And in publishing, that's kind of been saved to some extent by small presses or independent publishers, if you prefer. And you know, the same thing is true in film, but I don't think it's a sustainable model. I, I really, yeah. I don't. But when we move away f- from that, from that kind of precipice where we have to spend... million on a movie so that it can make us a billion dollars. I don't know when we back off from that, when we finally say enough is enough. Maybe we don't. I I don't know. I hope we do. I hope so too. God. All right. Switching gears. Now, I noticed you set a lot of your work in rural upstate New York. The Fisherman was set in the waterways around, I think, Woodstock and Kingston, which uh, my friend and I got a kick out of because we grew up around there and my friend reading the book kept saying, I swam there. I swam in that river. Um, Are you you sure that they're still human? That would be like... (laughs) It's a 50-50. Your short story, City of the Dog, was set in the most terrifying place of all, Albany, New York. So why do you choose this regional specificity? What do you get out of it? And have editors ever given you grief for setting your stories in a specific place that's not New York City or L.A.? Uh, Actually, editors have been very... They've been lovely. I've never... um, the, the only person, ironically, who ever gave me any grief was S.T. Joshi in writing about me. And in, in I think it was his modern horror book. He complained that I said all my stories in the Hudson Valley. And given that he's a big Lovecraft scholar, there's a certain irony there. But um, right. for me, it was like it was something I did. I actually started doing it when probably in, in grade school, maybe I, I was, as I said, when I was a kid, I loved comics. And I used to draw comic books, superhero comics, and I I set one or two of them, you know, sort of preliminary comic books in the Hudson Valley because I thought, wouldn't it be cool? But I think as much as anything, it had to do with a kind of imitation, you know, like I read Stephen King and King said all his stuff or most of his stuff in Maine. So I actually wrote a couple of stories set in Maine and my family had vacationed in Maine. So I was like, oh, okay. But then after that, after I'd used up those vacation spots, I needed a new place. And I, I just sort of thought King's writing about Maine. I guess I should write about Poughkeepsie or the Mid-Hudson Valley. Right. And then when uh, 
when I got to college and I discovered, on the one hand, Faulkner, and on the other hand, I was reading William Kennedy, the great Albany writer, his novel Ironweed, which remains a favorite of mine. Like, they demonstrated to me that that it wasn't just that you could use the the surface of your area to, to inform your fiction, the landscape of it, but the kind of the, the deeper history of it you could try to dig into. And so, yeah, occasionally I'll set stories on the moon or, you know, some other place just because I, you know, I want to or I think, okay, this is what it needs. But in, in a lot of ways, I, I like the thought of this area, returning to this area, because I, I feel like for in terms of European settlement of, of the United States, the Hudson Valley is is reasonably old. Um, and mm-hmm. even in terms of, of the native presence here, there's some evidence that the Clovis people who disappeared about, I want to say about like 10,000 years ago, if you go over... I think it's somewhere north of Sagardes, so a little bit north of where I am now on the Hudson River. There's there's a, a flint napping site that that goes back to around the end of the the last ice age. So, Whoa. yeah, I like that sense of of a kind of deeper a deeper history that I can draw on for my stuff. Yeah, that's cool because I was always wondering because I've said I've I mentioned to someone that I was setting a story in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and they just got so grossed out. Like, why would you do that? No, I think that's Why so you cool. you said something in Fort Lee? I just think that's awesome. I want to read the Fort Lee story. You know <laughs> what I mean? There's nothing wrong with saying, if, if you live in New York or if your story takes you to, to Manhattan, I mean, that's totally fine. But in yeah. a way, I'm much more interested in the Fort Lee, New Jersey story because you don't read stories set in Fort Lee. So let's see what that's about. Let's talk a little more about The Fisherman. It's clearly influenced by Moby Dick. Is Moby Dick cosmic horror? I think it is. I, I think it is in the, in the sense of it's about an individual coming up against a, a, a vast and maybe unknowable universe. Ahab says at one point, all of reality is just a pasteboard mask. And his desire is to punch through that mask and find out what lies behind that. Is is it nothing? You know, is it the void? Is it God? What kind of God is it? Is it something else, nature or whatever kind of principle you want to imagine? And in a sense, he never finds out. He's, he's destroyed in his quest, and Ishmael just sort of escapes to tell this story. Moby Dick is ultimately not conquerable, and not only that, but as the, as the narrative goes along, Moby Dick becomes this thing that is, yes, it took Ahab's leg, it dismasted him, as he says, and it can be this terrifying thing. But to other people, it's almost this creature of good omen. So it's this thing that, that just becomes... It's almost like the more you learn about it, the harder it gets to see or the harder it gets to understand. So I I think that, yeah, I I think that it fits into the cosmic horror thing. But I I think what it gives us, what makes it so great is, is the figure of Ahab and the crew as well. But I think especially Ahab, I think for cosmic horror, to work, the, there needs to be the person who's tempted <laughs> to, to right. the, the overreacher, you know, the person who wants to know, to punch through that pasteboard mask. And, and and I think in Ahab's case, because, you know, his first encounter with Moby Dick, he was just trying to kill a whale. You know, he's a whaler. That's what he does. However distasteful I may find that. And and then this, he has this terrifying encounter with, the, with this thing that almost kills him. And it drives him it drives him mad in a lot of ways he's come so close to death 
And in coming close to death, he's glimpsed the, the kind of absurdity of the universe. And he wants to find out, is it as, is it as mad as it seems? Is it as terrifying as it seems? And, and so I think that, that all of those things are, are what make that book so particularly effective. I think for anybody who was like, how do you write an effective cosmic horror story? In a way, I would say, think about your Ahab. Think about the character who wants to know this stuff and don't worry as much like, what is it? Herbert West reanimator. Don't, don't make it a Herbert West reanimator, you know, like, like make it somebody who's got really something at stake. And then if you can figure that out, if you can make it someone who has something at stake, then I won't say the cosmic horror is almost incidental, but, you know, I think a lot of people worry maybe more or newer writers worry more about, oh, I've come up with a new monster for the Lovecraft mythos. I mean, sure, that's mm-hmm. great. But don't I would say that that you could have the same old monster, Cthulhu, whatever. But if the person who's driven to find that monster or, or to access it or whatever, if that person is compelling, that's what will make the difference. No. The structure of this novel is a little unusual. The middle half is this long, extended story within a story flashback passed down by a guy at a diner. Why did you choose to structure the novel that way? Uh, Well, initially, I didn't think it was going to be a novel. I thought it was going to be a novella and, Mm. uh, you know, longer novella. But I really thought that the story that would be in the middle, each of the chapters was, was probably about 20 pages. And uh, maybe even a little less at that point. And so I thought that the story would be 20 pages, maybe 30, might be a little bit longer. And then I would come back for the rest of the novella, the, the rest of that, that sort of framing story. And then the, the story just grew in the telling and it grew and it grew and it grew. And uh, it kind of freaked me out. I was like, oh, my God, I'm writing a novel. Yeah. And uh, I put it aside for a while. And then I wrote House of Windows, my, my actual first novel instead, like so... I think I was just ready to write a novel. And so, yeah. And then I was like, oh man, this, the structure, this is so weird. What should I do? But I just decided to trust it. And yeah, ultimately that, that seems to have been the, that seems to have been the right call. Although there are still people who say "I, I can't buy it. There's this long narrative in the middle and, and I've tried to account for that, but I get it for some people that kind of the long narrative, the long oral tradition or or oral narrative, even if it's like, well, yeah, I wrote this down afterwards or whatever. I get it that for some people that's a deal breaker. I've just, Mm -hmm. I've always loved stories like that. I've always loved in Faulkner's work or or Conrad's work where you just get these long, someone's, you're just sitting on the, whatever, the porch in the afternoon drinking your mint juleps or whatever. And, (laughs) and, uh, and somebody just is like, oh, let me tell you the entire history of my life. And you're like, oh, okay. No. There was also something unusual I, I saw in that novel and that our protagonist at the end is faced with this journey into the unknown and going deeper into these cursed woods. And he makes a decision that's a little unusual, spoiler alert, uh, among horror protagonists and that he decides, no, nah, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this. I'm out of here. Fuck that. So why did you decide to end the novel that way? Well, you know, it, it was interesting. I've been thinking for, actually, it's funny, for that novel and my other, actually, I guess it's funny because I'm thinking my 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 first novel, um, House of Windows, and then after The Fisherman, I wrote a, a short novel called Sephira, which was included in the collection called Sephira and Other Betrayals. And and in, in a way, at the novel length, I've been really fascinated by ideas of choice. 
because choice so often doesn't seem to enter into horror narratives. Horror narratives mm-hmm. are about the lack of choice or mm-hmm. when is choice taken away from you. And so I've been really fascinated by the way that, that you might incorporate choice and moments of choice into horror narratives. And I, I think I wanted somebody who was sort of clear-sighted enough to reject a bad choice, even as his friend could not reject that bad choice. And and I suppose I I wanted that to be oddly hopeful that you might, because as as many people have observed, The Fisherman in particular is a book about grief and and grieving. So I I wanted there to be a moment where where somebody could not be swallowed by their grief, still grieve, you know, but but not not be swallowed by it in the same way that that someone else might be. So do you feel like there's a little bit of untapped potential in cosmic horror in a contemporary setting. Yeah, absolutely. The age of information. I mean, we're talking about information and knowledge that drives you insane. That's kind of what Facebook did to our parents' generation. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Or just, I, I was thinking of this because I was watching that uh, Chernobyl miniseries on HBO the other day, and I'm thinking like, this is cosmic horror. Russians summoned Cthulhu, basically. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, I I think that in cosmic horror, where we poisoned, uh, well, maybe that's a a little melodramatic, but we poisoned parts of the planet and we have changed the planet. We have changed the planet. Bad things are coming. I hope that we can get it together enough to try to do something about them. But I'm pretty pessimistic about, I I mean, something's going to happen. Can, Can we avoid making the planet completely uninhabitable? I hope so. But sea levels are rising and we have nations full of people that live at sea level. That's going to be a problem. So I, I think that um, I think that there are changes that are happening, catastrophic, gigantic changes that are happening on Earth already that cosmic horror is just ideally suited to deal with, to engage in a kind of metaphorical kind of a way. I think the more, the sort of further out we look into the universe, the stranger the universe gets. We had that that strange asteroid that plunged through the solar system and then out of the solar system again. And um, I, I think, what was up with that? You know, it was probably mm-hmm. just an asteroid, but boy, do I want to believe it was some kind of Arthur C. Clarke-esque alien probe or something like that. It, uh, what, uh, what's, coming, uh, what's coming next? So I, I think that, that there's still... If, if cosmic horror is in a sense about knowledge or concerned with knowledge and extremes of knowledge, if, if there are ways in which its modern form comes out of the scientific revolutions of the, the late 19th and then into the 20th centuries, things like evolution and, and our expanding understanding of the cosmos and the size of the cosmos and so on, and also our our understanding of how little we understand about human consciousness and how human consciousness works, then I think there's no reason to think that we can't just keep going with it because there are so many still so many things um, about our own existence that we don't understand. And, uh, and yeah, cosmic horror seems to me absolutely as well suited as anything to engage that in a really potent kind of way. Have you seen really good atomic cosmic horror? Because it seems like it's a perfect subject for it. And I, this might just be me not looking in the right places. I'm not sure if I've seen any of it. Yeah, not. Because it know. seems like just 
seems perfect for it. You, you know, splitting the atom, which is, I think the word is supposed to mean at its root, unbreakable. Right, right. Violating this immense boundary that was never, that we were supposed to never, ever cross. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it shows up in Garth Ennis's uh, Invisibles comic book. He relates the origin of the bad guys to the, the detonation of the atomic bomb in, uh, was it Taos, when Oppenheimer said, uh, I am become death, the whatever, destroyer, destroyer of worlds, of whatever, worlds. that in essence acts as a spell that, that releases all kinds of monstrous entities into our universe. And I... I um, I, I'm embarrassed to say that I still haven't seen uh, season three of Twin Peaks. Oh, but yeah, yeah. That's where Bob came from. He was yeah. sort of brought in from the atomic bomb. It just yeah, like, ushered yeah. this unspeakable evil. Yeah. And I mean, you could make a sort of, I mean, obviously the, the, the kaiju movies do this, although it's not really... It's not really frightening in the same way that we're talking about. I mean, it, it, not in the way it could be. I think that they're, I, I think they're, what was that movie? Cloverfield, although it became just kind of a bit silly at the end, but it was trying to do something with the idea of, of this, just this massive thing to, to, to which we are as just sort of ticks or, or, or whatever, just kind of running amok. I, I think there is something you could do with that, but, but it's tough. It's, it's tough for it not to be too silly. Yeah. Now, in the acknowledgement section of your first novel, or your first completed novel, House of Windows, you mm -hmm. wrote that you had trouble finding a home for the book. You said the genre people thought it was too literary, and the literary people thought it was too genre. Uh, a ton of my writer friends find themselves in the same awkward position where they have, they're writing stuff that I personally think is amazing, but they're having trouble finding a home for it because it's in this awkward in between place do you do you have any advice how 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 um, do you get your book published we for for both novels actually for both house of windows and the fisherman my agent went to all the big all the big presses and i i mean she went the as i said the mainstream presses were like well this is well written but i mean there's a monster in here and then the genre presses were like, there's a monster, but oh, what's all this good writing? I mean, that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a little obnoxious on my part, and I, I apologize. But, but yeah, they were not interested in the sort of character development stuff that I, I wanted to do. And I think about something Glenn Hirschberg said to me once. He said, man, if I could have figured out how to sell out, I would have done it years ago. Um, <laughs> So there is a part of me that, that, that would say to your friends or to anybody, just do you, you, you've got to like, do what you've got to do. And, and I get it right. That, that we all we're we're writing as a form of communication at, at this point, we want to get published, but I, I think, um, as we were saying earlier, so much of publishing is very conservative from an aesthetic standpoint right now. And they're very, very nervous about anything that is that is out of the ordinary in any way. Some stuff does get published, I, I mean, by, by big presses. But um, it, it's so, it, it seems in a lot of ways, so few and, and far between. So, uh, you know, in some ways, I think smaller presses offer a, a way forward. It's a little tricky because you need to be very careful. Some, you know, small presses also can just implode oh, yeah. because of, of bad decisions on the part of the people running them. So you need to do your homework a bit to see who it is you want to work with. But for example, Word Horde, who've published me, and then Undertow Press, 
uh, in Canada are two pretty solid presses. They're they're part of the reason they're solid is they're somewhat conservative themselves. They don't they publish they do publish more daring stuff, but they don't overextend themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that on the on the smaller press level is probably a good idea. But I I would absolutely say do you whatever whatever you is just be. Um, be aware that if you want to be rich, mm-hmm. <laughs> this may not be the way to do it, you know? <laughs> Actually, speaking of that, are you comfortable talking about money? Because sure, sure, it yeah. is a taboo subject among many artists, but I, I, I feel it's really important to talk about this in terms of writing because so many people have a wildly unrealistic idea about how much writing fiction pays. I've, I've seen people go into it expecting to make a living on it or even to get rich on it. Like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it, it, I mean, so the problem is that, that if you say that'll never happen, then someone will say, what about JK Rowling or what about Stephen right. King or what about Tom Clancy? And yes, there are, there are people who are now very wealthy because of their writing. It, it, it has to be acknowledged. My understanding is that, there are 300 people in the United States right now who are making a living as writers. And that's out of a population of over 300 million. Now, okay, you know, obviously not all of them are writing books. But if, man, I can't remember, was it 50,000 new books were published last year? I mean, I'm just kind of, right. I'm, I'm almost making that up because I can't, I just can't I have remember. no idea. But it was a you, lot. You could make up a number. I won't know. Right. <laughs> you can lie to me. I have no idea. Just, you know, it's... Um, <laughs> But um, so that is not to discourage anybody from writing. But if you're thinking, this is my, my get rich quick scheme, you need to find another get rich quick scheme. The reason that you write uh, has to be because you can't not write. If you're one of those people, uh, I'm, I'm like this, right? You know, there are a few days I'm getting kind of crabby. I'm like, what is wrong with me? And then I realize, ah, oh, you know, you haven't been writing for a couple of days. And I think, oh, yeah. and then I write and I feel better. That's what I'm talking about. If you're just, if you're, I almost want to say if if you're writing for almost any other reason, and I know that's a kind of high bar to set, but I feel that it is such an investment of time and energy that if you're just thinking, I guess it's like, like the person who thinks I can play three chords on the guitar. I'm going to be a rock and roll star. You know, (laughs) I mean, could it happen? Yes, possibly, but the odds are not great. And so I, I, I think advances for novels, if you get really lucky, you could get $5,000. And that's $5,000 that's going to be paid out in three installments over the space of, depending on your your publishing deal, like a year to 18 months. Mm. So... Yeah, so I, I, I uh, what would that be? Like sixteen hundred dollars ballpark per, and that's before your agent gets their fifteen percent. So yeah, that would be about fifteen hundred bucks, um, I, I guess. Per now, that's nice. Fifteen hundred dollars is nothing to sneeze at. And you could put it away in the bank. You could pay some bills. You could buy yourself. Oh, there's a, a book, a nice book you really want. You could buy that. But that's kind of it. And that 5000 that you've been paid, let's say, that's all you're going to get until your book earns out. And what that means is where it sells enough copies that, that it earns back the money that was paid to you, right? So in that case, maybe you're lucky and it sells very quickly. And within a year, you could be getting some royalties. It could take several years. 
uh, for that to happen. And again, then you'll be getting some royalties. But in the meantime, what are you doing to keep body and soul together? So I, I think that, but having said this, having said $5,000, it's as likely you'll get $1,000, in which case, yes, you're getting about 300 bucks, you know, <laughs> a, a time spaced out over, over several months. So those are sobering numbers. Now, of course, everybody thinks, oh, I'll get picked up by Hollywood. Or everybody hopes right. they just, oh, I'll get picked up by Hollywood. A Hollywood option, again, could be $5,000. Hollywood is what they want is they want to put a placeholder on your book. Let's imagine that, that you have you write this great book, and although it's a small press book, still it makes its way into the hands of a filmmaker who says, maybe I'd like to do something with this someday when I don't have 15 other projects or when I'm done with my 15 other projects. Right. So so to a certain extent, all they're doing is is they're saying, hey, you know what? I can give you a couple of grand so that nobody else gets to make this. And if you get a film agent, which you would want to have in that case, the film agent might be able to talk them up, right? But, you know, it's going to be, oh, they offered 1000 I think I can get you 2500 Or they offered 2500 maybe I can get you five. So, again, that's lovely. That's That that does feel like free money in some ways, right? That, that someone just gave you $5,000, let's say, uh, for the 18, and what's called a, an option. Let, but it's going to be like, let's say, an 18-month option. So for the next 18 months, nobody can touch that book except this person. And at the end of 18 months, look, they might decide, ah, I still think I can do it. And they they re-up the option. You may get 5000 for another 18 months, but now you've made $10,000 over three years. Um, <laughs> which, Hell and, yeah, money bags. Yeah, this is this is why I hate math. Um, <laughs> and, and so, and, and again, as, a, as an extra, all of this is fantastic. So, you know, your kid needs braces and and suddenly you get a check for, you know, they're going to give you a check for five grand. Hey, you just covered the cost of your kid's braces and that's fantastic. And then that doesn't have to come out of the regular budget. But uh, the fantasies uh, that are fed by TV and movies in particular of the writer who is living in a giant apartment and, and New York City and solving crimes with the cops, that doesn't really happen. So I, I think that you need to have a day job or marry a rich person. That's also yeah. a possibility. You know, it's, it's, yeah, that, uh, is, that is the secret that a lot of successful writers have. Exactly. You just want to find a rich person and you want to just hang on to them like a lamprey on a shark. That's <laughs> just undetected and sucking them dry. And, mm -hmm. but I think that you're going to need a day job and you need to to think a bit about that you need to think about a job that is going to provide you health insurance that's going to pay your bills a lot of a lot of writers choose teaching some form of teaching understandable you get a couple of months off in the summer you think to yourself, oh, well, school's out by three. I'll write my novel in the evenings. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's a lot of professions, teaching among them, they draw on the same kinds of creative resources in your brain that feed your writing. And so it's funny, many years ago when I was an, an adjunct, I was teaching at SUNY New Paltz, one of my colleagues there said, I'm just telling my students, get a job at Starbucks because they give you health insurance, the pay is pretty good, and it doesn't drain you. Like, you can still write after working at Starbucks. Mm. And I was like, I don't think their parents are going to be thrilled with that advice. <laughs> um, but, but 
he may be right. Raymond Carver, the late Raymond Carver, used to say the best job he ever had was a janitor's job where he worked the night shift and he was the janitor for this local high school. And he had figured out that he could get all his work done within about two hours, mopping the floors, whatever, cleaning the the boards or whatever. And then he had six hours to write and he was in a, a school by himself. So, and again, you know, it's a kind of story where, where it's like, oh, so you're telling me to be a janitor. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, is that in, in Carver's case, let's say that really allowed him to focus on his work, but also still provide food for his family and, and such. And again, the all important health insurance. So I think that those are, are difficult conversations to have with yourself. Of course you believe in yourself. And if, if you're a writer, that's part, part of what you, you, what you have to do is, is to believe in yourself. But you also have to be kind of fair to yourself in some ways and say, okay, what am I going to do until I get my big break, <laughs> which may never come. Right, right, right. I mean, it is important. I, I've found bureaucracy work is pretty good in that there's a fair bit of downtime during certain times of the year. And it, and it uses up absolutely zero of my creativity. None yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, I want to say was, um, I think it was Bernard Malamud, if I recall, worked in a government office, and uh, again, same thing. He'd he'd found that he could get if he just put his head down, he could get most of his work done in, in a couple hours in the morning, and then the rest of the day he would just type his stories. And anybody walking by was like, "Look at that Malamud! What is what a good worker he is!" You know, and they had no idea what he because he had his work done, and they right. thought, they just saw him typing, and they were like, "Oh, he must be doing his he must be doing his work," you know, for for us. Yeah, that that's definitely the way to do it. That is the best way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I think so. I think so. Oh, and unrelated question: Was that jingling sound in the background a dog? Yes, uh, my my yes. tiny little my tiny little dog. Uh, we have uh, my wife and I have five dogs. What? And uh, yeah, we have uh, a big labradoodle, That's and we so have, many dogs. Uh, we have three pit mixes, and then we have this little dog who's a dachshund beagle mix, and she uh, she's more my dog than the the other. I mean, they all love my wife, and they basically are like, she's in charge, and I'm like, what about me? Um, <laughs> and uh, this little dog gives me the most attention, I guess, of the rest. She indulges me the most. Nice. Ah, uh, dachshunds and beagles are ridiculously cute, so I'm they guessing are. this little guy is... Yeah, she's adorable. I I just love her. We we got along right from the get go, and it was a, a sort of a my sister sort of inherited her from a coworker who just kind of dumped her on my sister, and then uh, we wound up watching her for for a week because my sister was away, and and the dog and I just bonded, and that was that. You know, how do you so, dump a wiener beagle? You know, that's um, the perfect dog. Yeah, that's the best it, combination. It was a. Uh, um, I don't know. I, 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 I yeah, I, I don't know how, how these people did that. And, you know, my sister was just, it was not a dog she particularly wanted. And, mm. and so, yeah, I was quite happy to take her. So yeah, yeah, now she's my little mascot. Nice. Nice. All right. Last question. What are you working on currently? My fifth collection of stories will be out I thought it was going to be out in January, but it looks, I mean, we've kind of had to push it back a couple of times. And now it looks like with all this supply chain stuff, it's yeah. probably going to be March. It's called Corpse Mouth and Other Autobiographies. Um, it's a collection of stories that, as the subtitle suggests, were really drawn 
very strongly from my own autobiography. And um, mm-hmm. that'll be uh, that'll be out. I'm also reissuing my first collection, Mr. Gaunt, which has been out of print for a little while. So that that should be back January or February, I think, depending nice. on those same supply issues. And yeah, actually, it's going to be kind of a busy year. I, I have. I have a novella coming out in, I think it's Tor anthology that John Taff edited called Dark Stars. And that's a Wendigo uh, story. And then um, I have a a story coming out in in one of Ellen Datlow, like a monster anthology, another novella that that should be out, I think, June, June or July, something like that. So yeah, it's it's going to be, I'm saturating the market. That's that's the way it's looking. (laughs) And that um, sounds good. Yeah, it's it just it's what you know, sometimes it happens that you just like like you've written stuff over maybe a long period of time, but the way the, the sort of whatever publishing cycles align, suddenly all your stuff is just coming out at the same time. Nice. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up. It's been an hour. Thanks okay. again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk. Yeah. And thank you, audience, for listening. That's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, head to patreon.com slash writegood and subscribe. When we get to 100 subscribers, we'll do a special episode about Marion Engel's Bear, an award-winning Canadian novel about a woman who starts a torrid love affair with a bear. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by Surgery Head. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. KittySneezes.com in color. <laughs>